Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of the dead Music Hath Charms by L.T.C. Rolt When James Henniage rang up one morning, in a state of great excitement, with the news that he had just inherited the property of Trevathan in Cornwall, and to suggest a joint visit of inspection, Thornton accepted the proposal with alacrity. He had known James well since their school days, and they shared many tastes in common. Moreover, the fine spring weather made the prospect of exchanging the streets of London for the Cornish Cliffs particularly attractive. The house was said to be furnished, and assuming it fulfilled his expectations and that he could obtain suitable domestic help, James expressed his intention of occupying it, at any rate for the summer months, as he was at that time engaged upon a study of the early Celtic civilization of Cornwall, which involved considerable local research. Such an arrangement would suit him admirably. They arranged to meet the following morning beneath the clock on number one platform at Paddington. Meanwhile, in a mood of pleasurable anticipation, Thornton looked up Trevathan in Morrow's Guide to Cornwall and found the following brief entry. Trevathan House and Cove, Map 2, Square 6C. Small but picturesque private fishing cove in Mounts Bay, Penzance, 10 miles, Helston, 6 miles. Traditionally associated with activities of Count Hennessy, notorious 18th century smuggler and wrecker, rugged cliff scenery. As it would be difficult to find a Cornish cove which did not boast rugged cliff scenery, and which was not popularly associated with smuggling in fact or fiction, this information left Thornton little the wiser. James Henniage had never visited Trevathan, and at the time that he received the news of this unexpected legacy from an uncle whom he had never seen since early childhood, he knew no more about the place than Thornton. His sources of information, however, were not confined to Morrow's guide, for his library included a comprehensive collection of historical and topographical works on the duchy, including the great Borlaise, and these, as may readily be imagined, he had lost no time in consulting. The next day, while the Cornish Riviera Express bore them swiftly into the West Country, he imparted the fruits of this research to Thornton, with the result that by the time they had rumbled across Brunel's great bridge over the Tamar, the latter felt that he was already well acquainted with Trevathan. The house stood on the shoulder of Carnzown Head, its windows looking across the gulf of Trevathan Cove towards the arc of Mounts Bay. It was a massive building of Cornish freestone of indeterminate date, which was believed to occupy the site or to incorporate portions of two previous dwellings. In fact, one authority advanced the theory that the first building at Trevathan was a Celtic dun or cliff fortress similar to King Arthur's castle at Tintagel. This, however, was purely speculative, for the recorded history of the place began with the Trevathan family. Minor Cornish gentry who held the estate for many generations and played only a small part in the great events of their day, their history seems to have been in no way remarkable. The last of the line, Sir Peter Trevathan, supported the Royalist cause in the West, and when that cause founded with the fall of St Michael's Mount, his estates were confiscated and broken up. Before the restoration, which might have recouped the family fortunes, he had died impoverished, embittered, and without an heir. Thereafter, a curtain of obscurity falls upon Trevathan House, which does not lift for a hundred years. Either it stood empty, or, as seems more probable, it was partly occupied as a farmhouse. But in 1750, the curtain rises upon a melodramatic scene, for in that year... Count Hennessy acquired the property, and there began a brief regime which made the name of Trevathan notorious throughout Cornwall. Count Pierre Hennessy de Hou, to give him his full title, is said to have been of Huguenot family, and to have come to Cornwall by way of the Channel Islands. But no more is known of his past history, or of the reason why he chose to establish himself in this remote and by this time semi-derelict house. That he was a man of substance we may gather from the fact that he brought with him his own retinue of ten servants. He was also accompanied by a lady reputed to be his mistress, but who was euphemistically entitled La Pucelle. Among the nobility of the 18th century, the practice of vice was a fashionable pastime, while the average Cornishman of those days feared neither God nor man. But the Count seems to have triumphantly overcome this initial handicap to found a reputation second to none. Tales of unlimited license and debauchery spread abroad, 
and needless to say he was reputed to have sold his soul to the devil and to dice regularly with this obliging fiend. No doubt such tales were deliberately fostered by the Count and his bunch of thugs, for they must have been little better, in order to deter inquisitive strangers. In this he seems to have been successful, for although coast guards and preventative men must have been aware of what was going on, they apparently made no serious attempt to interfere with the landing of cargoes of contraband in Trevathan Cove. An even more lucrative source of revenue were the wrecks on the Goat Reef. The Count was reputed to lure vessels to their doom on the Goat by showing a false light on Carnsown Head, but these stories of wrecking by means of false lights usually have little foundation. When the great gales lashed the seas to fury round that savage coast, those pitiless sharks' teeth of rock must have done their work often enough without such aids. Even in these days of steam and diesel power, they still claim their victims. False lights or no, there were an unprecedented number of wrecks on the goat during the Count's regime, and we may imagine that the few survivors met with little mercy at Trevathan. As is so often the case, a reign of violence ended in violence. A local fisherman laying lobster pots offshore noticed that both the house and the cove seemed deserted and that the Count's lugger was missing from her usual berth. Emboldened by this unusual stillness, he brought his boat into the little harbour and landed at the quay. Under the cliffs where the zigzag path descends from the house, he found the body of Count Pierre Anizoudou with contorted face and broken neck. But of the rest of his gang, including La Pucelle, there was no trace. The superstitious declared that the devil had claimed his own, but the more reasonable explanation which found favour with the majority was that La Pucelle had become jealous and persuaded the others to murder the Count before making off with as much of his ill-gotten gains as they could lay their hands on. Oh, quite a colourful story, concluded James with a laugh. Good enough for a schoolboy thriller, don't you think? Thornton nodded. What happened to the house after that? he asked. Oh, nothing of any interest, answered the other. It stood empty again for many years until my great-grandfather took it, and apparently spent a lot of money in doing it up. Funnily enough, he added, he's supposed to have been of Huguenot descent too, though he didn't take after the wicked count. By all accounts, he was highly respectable. Thereafter, the conversation drifted to more general topics, until the train slid down the long incline from St. Earth, and they saw the majestic shape of St. Michael's Mount, framed in the carriage window. From Penzance Station they took a bus, alighting from it at the point where the narrow lane which descended to Drathen Cove made junction with the main road. It was a perfect spring evening, still and cloudless, the air soft as only Cornish air can be. The main road had taken them out of sight and sound of the sea into bleak uplands, punctuated by the gaunt stone chimney shafts of derelict tin mines, but as they followed the lane downward, the uplands unfolded to reveal blue water, at first only a pool prisoned by the great arm of Carnzaun, but presently stretching away to the horizon. And soon they scented the salt tang of the sea, and heard again the eternal voice of the Cornish coast, the endlessly recurring thud and surge of the waves against the cliffs of Trevathan, and the lost crying of the gulls. At the foot of the hill, the track veered to the left, skirting the lip of the cove, and it was here that Henniage and Thornton first caught sight of Trevathan House, a long low building of weathered stone sheltering beneath the arc of the headland. Its windows, facing westwards over the sea, glowed with reflected fire from the setting sun. For a few moments they stood entranced by this romantic spectacle, before pressing on up the farther slope towards the house. James almost ran in his eagerness to set foot in his new home. I quite forgot to tell you, he panted over his shoulder to Thornton, who was doing his best to keep up with him. There's an old couple named Penrice who was supposed to be looking after the place. I sent them a wire so they should be expecting us. They reached the low arched doorway, pulled an iron ring which jangled a bell somewhere in the back regions of the house, and Mrs. Penrice duly appeared. She proved to be a voluble old lady, so it would be tedious to recount the conversation which ensued. But if she was garrulous, she was also efficient. She had prepared beds for them. An appetising and highly seasoned aroma which suggested Cornish pasty wafted out from the kitchen, while the way in which she directed her docile husband to relieve them of their suitcases left little doubt as to who was in control of the establishment. 
First impressions of the house seemed to justify their highest expectations, but as darkness was falling, and as they were tired and hungry after their journey, they decided to postpone any detailed tour of inspection until the morning. After they had consumed Mrs. Penrice's pasty, which convinced James that he need look no further for domestic help, they sat for a while in the flickering firelight of the low-ceilinged dining room before retiring contentedly to bed. The sound of the sea soon lulled them to sleep. Thornton never slept with drawn curtains, and when he awoke after a dreamless night the sun had already cleared the rim of the headland behind the house and its light was streaming into his room. He lay for a while in drowsy content before he got up, dressed, and walked out onto the narrow front terrace where James presently joined him. The morning promised a continuance of the fine weather, but the shape of the mount across the bay was blue and indistinct, and the sea was calm. Both men were in high good humour, and after they had consumed an excellent breakfast, they commenced a thorough exploration of the house. It was not, as James had feared, too large. Four good bedrooms excluding the servants' quarters, and on the ground floor three large and well-proportioned rooms in addition to the usual domestic offices. With the exception of a few good examples of an earlier epoch, fittings, furniture and decoration reflected a deplorable mid-Victorian taste. But James was undismayed, declaring that the house possessed infinite possibilities, and as he paced to and fro, excitedly formulating his plans, Thornton began to visualise how readily Trevathan would respond to his friend's good taste. They agreed at once that the drawing-room to the south of the west front was potentially the most attractive room in the house. Though it boasted three large windows, two set in deep embrasures with window seats facing west over the sea and a third facing south, it was at present darkened by massive mahogany furniture, quite unsuited to its proportions, and by a hideous wallpaper of repetitive floral pattern. I shall make this my library and workroom, James declared, dismissing the furniture with a wave of the hand. Just imagine, he went on, all this junk cleared away, and the walls cream colour washed. Yes, the other agreed, but you'll have to strip this paper off before you can colour wash. If I know anything about old houses, it's probably about fifteen layers thick. As he said this, Thornton was idly smoothing the surface of the wall to the left of the fireplace with the palm of his hand. In doing so, he made a discovery that he was afterwards destined most bitterly to regret. His fingers detected and followed a slight symmetrical irregularity in the surface of the wall beneath the paper. He felt, and then felt again. I say, he asked eagerly, got a knife on you? Yes, said James, coming across the room and taking out a pocket knife. Why? Thornton took the knife and opened the blade. Unless I'm much mistaken, he answered, there's a cupboard behind here. Mind if I cut the paper? Not a bit, James assured him, and added with a laugh, perhaps it's full of the old count's loot. After a few moments probing, Thornton made a neat rectangular cut in the paper which was interrupted only in three places by what were undoubtedly the hinges and latch of a door. The next thing to do was to open it. After layer upon layer of paper had been peeled off, it became obvious that the cupboard was not locked but was held by an inside latch, the lever of which had been removed with the resulting hole plugged up. To push up the latch with the aid of a strong kitchen knife obtained from Mrs. Penrice was the work of a moment. The door opened to reveal a small cupboard of three shelves let into the thickness of the wall, but to their unbounded disappointment it appeared at first glance to be empty. Wait a minute, though, said Thornton, stooping to peer into the dark lower shelf. What's this? He thrust in his arm and dragged into the light an oblong wooden box about the size of an average deed box. It was beautifully made of oak, with elegant brass mounts. Aha! exclaimed James exultantly. The treasure! What's a betting? Diamonds? Doubloons? Or only the missing will? They carried it into the light and set it down on the table by the window. The lid opened quite easily, and then, after their high expectations, both men burst out laughing at the incongruous nature of their discovery, for it was a musical box. Closer inspection, however, revealed that this was no ordinary musical box. It operated upon the normal barrel and pin principle, in this case the barrel being of wood studded with brass pins. But instead of striking the usual comb, 
These pins opened the valves of a set of little organ pipes which are supplied with air by a diminutive bellows worked from the barrel spindle by a crude form of cam action. The barrel was rotated externally by a neat S-shaped handle, which was at present detached, and lying snugly in a compartment at the side of the case. It was, in fact, a miniature version of those barrel organs, which were widely introduced into village churches towards the end of the 18th century. Most musical boxes exhibit, on the inside of the lid, a list of the tunes which they play, but in this case there appeared a contemporary engraving in mezzotint which occupied the whole surface of the lid, and which was even more remarkable than the instrument itself. It depicted, with remarkable vigour and detail, a scene of shipwreck. Under an ominous sky and amid mountainous seas, a tall three-masted vessel was rapidly breaking up on the rocks beneath towering cliffs. Small figures could be seen clinging desperately to the rigging. Hovering in a lowering cloud in the extreme left-hand top of the corner of the picture, a flying figure directed from inflated cheeks a blast of air upon the sails of the doomed ship, in that convention beloved of the early cartographers. But scrutiny revealed that he was no curly-haired, dimpled cherub, but a creature of so unpleasant and menacing an aspect that Thornton quickly turned his attention to the foreground. But here the artist's singular and grotesque imagination was displayed with equally skilful and disquieting effect. Upon a narrow strip of beach out of reach of the waves, a group of figures, seen in black silhouette, appeared to be dancing before a fire. Finally, upon the cliff top, directly above, were two more figures. Of these, one was a tall man who stood at gaze, apparently dispassionately regarding the scene below. The other... A shorter figure stood, or rather crouched, close beside him. The artist had not accorded this last figure the same precision of treatment and attention to detail which characterised the rest of his work. Its vague and shadowy outline failed to suggest a human shape, yet after careful examination, Thornton came to the conclusion that if he were to be confronted with the choice of two such evils, he would rather encounter the monster of the air than this creature on the cliff. The engraving was unsigned, but along the margin was an inscription, the significance of which Thornton could not comprehend. It ran, Har, har, hu, hu, danse ici, danse là, joue ici, joue là. Well, what do you make of it? asked James, who had been leaning over his shoulder during this examination. Thornton raised his eyes from the picture and looked out over the calm sea beyond the window for a few moments before replying, I think he answered slowly, that it's a most unpleasant thing. I don't profess to understand what it all means, but if you'll take my advice, you'll pitch it over the cliff. James looked at him in astonishment. My dear fellow, he expostulated. What on earth makes you talk like that? Anyone would think it was an infernal machine. Damn it, man, it's only a child's musical box, and a very rare one at that from the look of it. We've made a find here, and I wouldn't dream of throwing it away. Have it your own way, then, said the other, with a shrug of the shoulders. Perhaps I'm being a fool, but, he added, I would hardly describe it as a toy. That pretty picture on the lid would give most children the horrors. Thornton paced across the room to the fireplace, while James again bent over the musical box. It's certainly in rather queer taste, he admitted. As he said this, he took out the little curved handle and fitted it over the barrel. Thornton heard the faint click as it went home, and turned to see what he was doing. Without knowing what prompted him to do so, he cried out, For God's sake, leave the thing alone! But James only laughed and turned the handle. At first, the instrument only produced a sibilant noise, not unlike the eager panting of an excited dog. Then, suddenly, it broke into a shrill piping tune to the rhythm of a lively jig. But it was like no tune that Thornton had ever heard before. It reached a top note that, like the squeak of a bat, was almost beyond the range of audibility and whose piercing quality positively hurt the eardrum. The tune rose to this thin yet deafening climax or fell away again in a series of exuberant capriccios, quite horrible to hear because the dissonance of their diminished intervals never seemed to find resolution. Again, despite the comparatively small volume of sound it produced, 
the instruments seemed to possess the power to awaken sympathetic resonance, not only in the table upon which it stood, but in surrounding objects, until the whole room seemed to be whistling in unison. Thornton, who thought he had never heard so hideous a sound, eventually found he could stand it no longer and shouted out, For heaven's sake, stop that fiendish din! Obediently, James stopped, withdrew the handle, replaced it carefully in its compartment, and closed the lid. He was smiling in a curious, sly sort of way. Why, he asked, don't you like it? Perhaps I've got no ear for music, but personally I think it's rather fun. He tucked the box carefully under his arm and moved towards the door. Well, I think it's horrible, said Thornton bluntly. Where are you going with it anyway? I'm taking it up to my room, the other answered. I'm not going to give you the chance to smash my musical box when I'm not looking. I wish the hell I could, Thornton muttered as James disappeared up the stairs. In a brief half-hour, the wretched thing seemed not only to have raised a barrier of mistrust between them, but to have emptied the house of all content. The happiness of yesterday, and even the pleasure and excitement of the morning, already seemed to have receded into a remote past. With difficulty, Thornton tried to analyse his feelings. It was as though they had somehow awakened Trevathan House from sleep, and that this wakefulness was hostile. He realised that he hated the place and was filled with an urgent desire to get away from it as soon as possible. As he could give no valid reasons for this impression, Thornton hesitated to mention it to James, who appeared to be insensitive to any such change of atmosphere. For the rest of the evening he seemed in high good humour and continued eagerly to discuss his proposed alterations. Yet although it may have been imagination, Thornton thought he could detect a certain forced quality about James's gaiety a certain nervous restlessness which had not been noticeable the previous evening. He thought, too, that Mrs. Penrice seemed to be ill at ease and to look strangely at his host while she was serving dinner. Thornton slept badly that night. To begin with, the weather broke unexpectedly, the wind veering to the southwest and rising to a gale which was accompanied by lashing squalls of rain. Though his room was on the landward side, he could hear above the tumult of the wind the thunder of heavy seas breaking upon the rocks. On its exposed side, Trevathan caught the full force of the gale, so that the house seemed full of sound. Casements rattled, there were minor creaking noises which suggested stealthy movement, and once a door slammed somewhere. At one time he awakened from an uneasy doze and thought he could hear faintly the eldritch sound of the musical box, but decided that it must be the piping of the wind. Once too he thought he heard James talking, or rather calling out, in his sleep. By the time dawn broke, the grey, reluctant dawn of flying cloud, Thornton had finally resolved to leave the place as quickly as he conveniently could. James came down late. He looked pale and distracted, and yet, in a queer sort of way, rather smug, as though he nursed a secret joke. In response to his friend's inquiry, he protested that he had slept well, though Thornton noticed that he seemed reluctant to look him straight in the face. The barrier of reserve which had come between them now seemed to have grown insurmountable, yet Thornton doubted his ability to excuse his premature departure convincingly. It was a measure of the change which had come over their relationship that he found it necessary on the pretext of posting an urgent letter to send himself a telegram from the post office in the neighbouring village. It arrived while they were at lunch. Though he made polite protestations of disappointment at the news of his friend's imminent departure, James made no attempt to dissuade him. In fact, Thornton thought he seemed secretly relieved. He even helped to speed his parting guest by looking up timetables. There's a bus from the corner, he announced, which connects with the 8.40 night sleeper from Penzance. That'll get you into town in time for your appointment in the morning. That evening, as he stood on the doorstep bidding goodbye to his host, Thornton's conscience smote him at the thought of his precipitate desertion. While nothing would have induced him to change his mind, he felt guilty and uneasy at the thought of leaving James alone at Trevathan. But, illogical though it was, this feeling of uneasiness could be associated with nothing more tangible than a musical box. I know you think I'm a fool, he said diffidently, as he took James's hand. But do take my advice and get rid of that musical box. 
I, I couldn't tell you why. I just don't like it. But it was no use. James only laughed. Nonsense, my dear chap, he exclaimed, and then quoted mockingly, Ha, ha, hoo, hoo, dance ici, dance là, jouez ici, jouez là. As he did so, he executed a little capering dance on the doorstep in time with the words, and then giggled. Thornton didn't appreciate the joke. Goodbye, he said abruptly, and turned on his heel. Come and see me again, when I've finished my alterations, the other called after him, as he walked off through the dusk. Then the door closed. The months slipped by, and Thornton received no further invitation to visit Trevathan House. Not that he would have felt inclined to accept it if he had. For a while he continued to feel concern for his friend, but in time he tended to dismiss the cause of this concern as so much imagination. Finally, other preoccupations drove the memory of James Henyage and Trevathan House out of his thoughts, or nearly so, for the unprecedented storms of the next two winters brought press reports of wrecks on the Goat Reef, and this reminded him of James, who he thought must be having an exciting time. Three years passed before one summer's evening we again find Thornton descending the lane to Trevathan Cove. Business had brought him to Cornwall, and remembering James Henyage, his curiosity had got the better of him. He drove out from Penzance, but as the weather was fine he decided to leave his car at the crossroads and walk to the house as on the previous occasion. Everything recalled the keen anticipation of that first arrival the sound of the sea in crescendo as he descended the hill, the cliffs of Carnzown, and there, as he turned the corner, Trevathan House. As he approached the door, he realised that his previous impression, which he now most vividly recalled, had not been due merely to imagination. Why he knew this is difficult to say, but his instinctive impulse was to turn back the way he had come, so that to advance to the door and pull the iron bell ring called for a considerable effort of will. His summons was answered not by the reassuring figure of Mrs. Penrice, but by a soft-footed and obsequious manservant who ushered him into the room where he had made his discovery. The master will be with you in a few moments, sir, he said, speaking with a slightly foreign accent and with a curious emphasis upon the word master. Thornton looked around the room. James had certainly transformed it, though his taste seemed to have altered considerably. In earlier days he had shared with Thornton a preference for what might be described as comfortable simplicity, but the taste that had furnished this room could only be described as opulent, or was sensuous a better word. Walls fitted bookcases, and the deep pile carpet were of pale greyish-green colour, which was certainly an admirable foil for the rose-velvet coverings of the luxurious sofas and chairs, and the magnificent brocade window curtains. One corner of the room was occupied by a grand piano. The cupboard beside the fireplace, which he had discovered, had been converted into a small embrasure. The door had been taken off, the interior painted in a shade of colour slightly darker than the walls, and cleverly illuminated by concealed strip lighting. In it reposed the only article in the room which he recognised, the musical box. It was highly polished, and the brass mounts gleamed in the light. The blazing fire made the room almost uncomfortably warm, while there was a faint, cloying scent in the air, not unlike incense, or perhaps some sort of potpourri. As is the way with book lovers, Thornton ran his eye along the bookshelves to discover that James's literary taste had changed no less. As is the way with book lovers, Thornton ran his eye along the bookshelves to discover that James's literary taste had changed no less markedly. He noticed the works of the Marquis de Sade and de Lancre, Glanville's Sadochismus Triumphatus, Sinclair's Satan's Invisible World Discovered, and various other obscure works of which he had never heard, bearing such titles as Demoniality or Elo des Démons et Sorcières. He turned for relief to the walls but found their evidence of an equally unhealthy preoccupation. Reproductions of engravings by Albrecht Dürer including the celebrated The Night, Death and Satan, The Temptations of Hieronymus Bosch, a small painting by Fuseli, and a drawing of Beardsley's from under the hill. On the wall between the windows which faced the sea hung a single painting in oils of the Surrealist school. At the first quick glance it appeared to be an ordinary seascape, 
an expanse of sea stretching to the horizon with rocks in the foreground. But closer inspection revealed that these rocks were of strange shape. In fact, Thornton began to doubt whether the huddled forms upon the beach were rocks at all. He was examining this picture intently and was rapidly forming the conclusion that it was probably the most unpleasant thing in the room when someone chuckled softly and he swung round to discover that James had come noiselessly into the room and was standing close behind him. He had grown paler and thinner since he had last seen him, and his eyes were very restless. Hello, Thornton, he said, extending his hand. Glad to see you. What do you think of it? He went on, nodding towards the picture. Don't you think it's rather nice? It's a bit of La Pucelle's work. La Pucelle, Thornton repeated, mystified, and the other laughed. Oh, that's only a nickname, and just my little joke in the tradition of the house. Her real name is Jean. You'll meet her in a few moments. While he was speaking, Thornton noticed that his friend had acquired some peculiar, nervous mannerisms of speech and gesture. At the same time, however, there was something smug and self-satisfied about him, as though he still harboured some secret joke. Yet James seemed genuinely pleased to see him. I am glad you came, he averred with apparent sincerity. Sit down and have a drink. Sherry, you'll stay to dinner, of course. He took a heavy cut glass decanter and two glasses from the shelf below the bookcase. My word, said Thornton as he sipped his drink, where did you get this? I can't buy sherry like this in London. The other giggled and looked sly. You shouldn't ask such questions in Cornwall, he admonished. But as a matter of fact, I'll tell you, we have to thank the Goat Reef for this. You may have read in the papers last winter about the wreck of the Santa Maria. She was bound from Portugal to Dublin, but she got blown hopelessly off her course. A good many of the barrels were broached, but we managed to save quite a few. Sounds like the good old smuggling days, doesn't it? But when you live on the Cornish coast, you soon learn to keep a sharp eye on the beach. He giggled again, rubbing his hands one over the other. Oh, yes, I'm quite deeply indebted to the goat reef. Thornton didn't care for the way he said this, and there was an awkward pause which was broken by the opening of the door. Here's Jean, James exclaimed, and the two men stood up. Jean, this is an old friend of mine, Tom Thornton. The girl, who was standing on the threshold of the room, inclined her head and smiled. She was tall and of a pale but perfect complexion, which contrasted strikingly with a pair of unusually large dark eyes and a mass of black curls which clustered closely about her head. She wore an elegant, long-skirted dress which suggested the style of the Second Empire, and as she advanced towards him, moving with superb grace and assurance, Thornton thought she was the most striking woman he had ever seen. Striking, and yet in some indefinable way, repellent. He realised that she bore an almost uncanny resemblance to the woman in Fuseli's evil little painting which hung behind his chair. She was doing her best to put him at his ease, talking in a soft, low-pitched, slightly husky voice, and emphasising her words with expressive movements of the hands which seemed to belie her perfect English. But she only partly succeeded, for her hands absorbed most of Thornton's attention. He found himself gazing at them in much the same way as a rabbit stares at a stoat. They were exceptionally long-fingered, and they were bare except for one large and curiously wrought intaglio ring which winked in the firelight. The almond-shaped nails were lacquered the colour of blood. Her presence seemed to heighten the oppressive atmosphere of the room, and Thornton felt mightily relieved when a gong summoned them to dinner. It was an excellent meal, efficiently served by the same soft-footed manservant who had admitted him, but Thornton did not enjoy it. His host and hostess made themselves very agreeable, but their talk somehow seemed to have that forced quality of adults speaking to a child, while the glances which he intercepted suggested that they shared a life of which he knew nothing. He felt no desire to be enlightened. At one period during the meal there was an interruption. Something, a large dog presumably, snuffed and scratched at the door. James called out sharply some unintelligible word, and there was silence. Afterwards, as they sat over coffee and liqueurs in the library, James suggested that Jean should play for them. She complied readily, and sitting herself at the grand piano, began to softly play some slow, sensuous piece which Thornton couldn't identify, but which reminded him strongly of Debussy's L'Après-Midi d'Enfant. 
It was obvious that she was an extremely competent pianist, yet Thornton decided that he liked her playing even less than her painting. While the voluptuous languor of the music seduced his senses, there was yet some nightmare quality about it, which revolted his reason. Like everything else in that house, it was beastly, and that, he thought, was the only word for it. It was not merely that James had become a voluptuary, that he could easily understand and excuse, even though he might regret it. Intuition told him that there was something much worse than that. He suddenly knew that he could not bear to stay a moment longer. He got to his feet, apologising for his rudeness and muttering something about having no key to his hotel. As the front door closed behind him and he felt the cool night air in his face, he experienced an indescribable sense of relief. He set off at a brisk pace, resolved that nothing would induce him to visit Trevathan again, but when he reached the corner he turned to take a last look at the house. As he did so, the front door opened and a figure, which he recognised to be that of James, was sharply silhouetted against a rectangle of light. He seemed to be peering out as though looking for something, or someone. And then he saw dimly visible in the light from the windows that this unknown someone was in fact moving to meet him. Something about its shape and the way it crouched was very familiar to Thornton, and he confesses that at this point he turned and ran, nor did he stop running until he reached his car. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back. Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? That was Music Health Charms by Lionel Thomas Caswell Rolt who was known as um, Tom. And he was an English writer born in 1910 and died in 1974. And uh, as I say, for us, he's quite a recent writer. We did a story of his way back called Bosworth Summit Pond. And I think they're both from the same slender collection, which is Sleep No More, which I recently got hold of a copy. The, um, the first one, Bosworth Summit Pond, had been anthologized. But this, although this has good reputation, I couldn't find it anywhere so I had to buy a book, which is no hardship, to be honest, because I buy a lot of books. So anyway, he was a prolific writer, and he was an engineer. And you see that in the stories he writes that are all about, he's very keen on canals and steam engines and things like that. He wrote um, a biography of his about Kingdom Brunel and one of Thomas Telford, two very famous engineers from the Victorian period. He liked uh, vintage cars, heritage railways. And with Robert Aikman... He started the Canal uh, Restoration Trust and bought all the canals, not all of them personally, but, you know, started the movement which reopened the canals for leisure use because they had been built during the Industrial Revolution as industrial waterways. During the Second World War, he went to work for Rolls-Royce and made Spitfire engines, the Royal Air Force's legendary plane. When we know something of Rolls' biography, we can see why the mechanism of the Musical box in Music Hath Charms has got such a, a detailed description. You could almost build one from his description So, because he was very interested in engines and things and machines and stuff like that. So the story set of Music Hath Charms is set in wild Cornwall. And Cornwall, because it's remote from where most people in Britain live, and it's got this romantic Celtic past, and it's rugged uh, and beautiful, uh, it's, a, it's an absolutely perfect setting for a ghost story. And there are a number of ghost stories set in Cornwall, and I'm sure we'll do some more later, later on as we roll forward into 2021. So Cornwall has a history of smugglers and wreckers, and this is the background to this story. And it's when you... If, I don't know if you've read any Daphne du Maurier, who wrote Rebecca and uh, Don't Look Now. I think she's a pretty good writer, actually. Well, she set a number of her stories in uh, Cornwall, uh, Frenchman's Creek and Rebecca. No, Rebecca isn't in Cornwall, but anyway, big Cornish thing. And uh, she used smugglers and indeed Frenchmen in her stories, just as we've got here. Just for the record, La Pucelle means the girl or the maiden. And the story here, Music Hath Charms, is a Faustian story. The smuggler, the Count Pierre Enezé de Hou, 
is uh, is is the ghost, I suppose. So there is no such name as NZ. There is a NSL, NSL, and that's a, actually a place named after a place in the Vosges region in northeast France. And there is a Dehu as well, Dehu, of course, pronounced without the H, so Dehu. And uh, I think he's miscopied the name NSL and to NZ. But there you go. It could be a choice. He may have miscopied the name, and I suspect the Count and the Count Pierre is, is, is a self-styling. And I personally have often fancied myself calling myself Count Tony Walker, but I don't have the brass neck to get away with it. Now, Karn Zaun doesn't exist. The name is Good Cornish. Karn, Karn is a heap of stones. And the, and the, the Cornish word Sawan is the same as the Welsh Savan, which means a throat uh, and is used particularly around the Cornish coast for a narrow inlet of the sea. And Trevathan is a real, the really Cornish people called Trevathan. And there are, there are two farms called Trevathan. Because, you know, people originally got a lot of these names. Like, what's his name? Kit Harrington. His ancestors came from Harrington. You know, that's the thing. That's how a lot of surnames happened. If, you, if it wasn't a patronymic and it wasn't um, a job title like mine and it wasn't a by name, so Big Tony or Little Tony or whatever, you know, it was from where you came from. So Trevathan's a real place. And I say the only mistake that he makes, and not many people would know this, is he has his lady uh, housekeeper called Penrice. Sounds like it could be Cornish, doesn't it? Pen, there's lots of pens and stuff. But in fact, Penrice is a Cumbrian name, and some of my ancestors were Penrice's. And in fact, it's, it is a place name. Again, it's from Penrith or Penrith, as it was. That's, that's it. So it sounds Cornish, but isn't it? It's Cumbrian. But of course, the Cornish and Cumbrian languages were closely related. So um, we can let him away with that. I have a, because I don't know if you know, my first degree was in Welsh and Irish. And uh, when I lived in Wales, there were lots of Bretons and Cornish people there as well. So I have a, I really like Cornwall and Brittany as well. So the, the Penrises could have gone to Cornwall from Cumbria. They could have, but it's unlikely. There were many Cornish came up to Cumbria when the mines were open, the coal mines and the iron mines and the various other mines, because of their expertise as, as miners, but it didn't go the other way. And the fact that this is true is proved, because if you go to Keswick today, you'll see there are two Cornish pie, Cornish pie, I should be struck off for saying that, there are two Cornish pasty shops in Keswick alone, probably more in Kendall and Carlisle, who, who knows, Penrith even possibly has some. But there are not, when I was down in Cornwall, walking around Truro, Helston, places like that, Penzance, not a single Cumberland sausage shop, not a single one. Now this is, this is if, if the, the migration flow had been the other way, I think we would have seen them, but we don't. Anyway, back to the devil. We presume, this is a Faustian story, and we presume the shadowy figure who appears on the painting on the cliff and is then later seen coming round the house after our man Thornton leaves is in fact the deal. The deal's a wow with a size man. So, yeah, the devil. And Count Pierre, NSA, what did he give the devil? Presumably his soul, and pre presumably in return he got sherry and opulent curtains. I don't know if that's a good deal or not. And he gets, of course, La Pucelle as well. And that, of course, is, if, you, if you've read Goethe's Faust, then uh, you, you know that uh, Faust, his big thing was he wanted Helen of Troy. So the devil went, yeah, okay. Yeah, you can have that, but I want your soul. And he went, yeah, all right. And then, of course, he regrets it. But there's no sign that our man, it's a much shorter story than Faust, of course, regrets it. The Count, he comes to a bad end, we presume. He suddenly disappears and we guess that might be the devil calling in the bargain. You know, I know, I'll have you now. You've had all the fun you're going to have with La Pucelle. Now, the musical box somehow conjures forth, does it conjure forth NSA? It sounds like it does, doesn't it? it, it our, our James Henage, now that is the point I was making. Maybe he used the name, he got the name Henazel. And he thought, nah, I want it to be more like Hennage, which is a weird name. I've never heard of that. Uh, and he puts them together. So maybe it's to suggest that um, our man is an answer, a descendant, rather, of the Count Pierre de Nézé, or 
I don't know what else. Maybe he's some kind of reincarnation or whatever. But he changes, doesn't he? He becomes inhabited and possessed. And this is a bit like, I don't know if you like uh, Twin Peaks. It's a bit like Bob in Twin Peaks, isn't it? It's an inhabiting spirit. So, but he doesn't turn particularly evil. He just likes um, Sherry. Although there is a hint, he may have wrecked that boat to get the sherry, so maybe he did, maybe he is bad. It's a pretty gentle story. There, there's no bad ending. All there is is a look over his shoulder and he sees the devil. But our our hero, Mr Thornton, doesn't come to any, any bad end, as he would have done if it was a horror story. So it's a fairly gentle story. And all he's left with is this disquieting image, which I'm guessing would stay with him to the, to the end of his life. Yeah, La Pucelle, this gene, who spelt... J-E-A-N-N-E in the story. And I'm like, well, I don't know how to pronounce that. Is it Jeanne? Is it supposed to be French? I think the implication was that it was French and that the the um, this, the manservant who speaks with a bit of a foreign accent, not a lot, just a bit, um, is French as well. And I guess it is, I guess the implication is that the, the whole ghastly court is reborn in Trevathan. Trevathan has its original inhabitant back. I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe you have got a clearer idea about that, but it's a nice story. I think there's some nice descriptions. The, story, the storm that he lies awake in and the description of the storm coming through the house and rattling stuff was really pretty good. I liked it. I do like it. It didn't scare me, but then not much does scare me these days. My daughter saw Mudman. She had like a sleep paralysis and she woke up and there was a mud man sitting in the corner of her room. Apparently um, these kind of hallucinations are common with sleep paralysis. So, But she was a bit scared, but it, it hasn't come back. I said I'd come round and sort him out, you, you little mud man. I don't know how big he was. If he was a big mud, mud man, I may have changed my mind. Anyway, I'm rambling on again. So I'm not going to even talk about the world outside these stories. It's too dismal. So let's just enjoy the stories. I hope you enjoyed Slow Me last time. I'm, I'm thinking of doing, anyway, I won't say because we, we don't know. I've got a couple in mind. I'm doing Dracula for, my, for the paid stuff. So if you like Dracula, I'm plodding on with that. I'm about to do chapter four. Um, I love Dracula. I'm really enjoying relating it, but of course it's exclusive. So if you want some exclusive, if you want to sign up to that, you can become a Patreon or you can sign up on Substack. Yep. If you don't want to do that and you'd just like to um, support me, then you can buy me a coffee through Ko-fi. And I'll put links in the show notes. And it's just basically ko-fi.com forward slash Tony Walker. I think it's all one word, but you can find me there. So a cup of coffee would be much appreciated. Hope you're all well. Music by, actually, got to say, Hair and the Moon have got a new album out. And this is one of the songs from them called Under the Rose. And then after that, I've got uh, Powers of Darkness by the Hartwood Institute. Okay, thank you very much.